everybody to the Anagram Journey with the Anagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today we have Sean Palmer, Anagram 3, author of 40 Days on Being 3 from the InterVarsity Press book series, Anagram Daily Reflections, edited by Suzanne Stabile. You'll also remember Sean from episode 69 of the Anagram Journey. This conversation was recorded in front of a small live audience at the Micah Center here in Dallas and streamed online back in November. Sean's book is great, and you can get it on Amazon. Uh, we have it on the LTM website or ivypress.com. Be sure to look for the rest of the authors to join Suzanne on the podcast throughout 2021. Today, Suzanne and Sean are going to talk about code switching, Sabbath keeping, living in the future success as a three and parenting as a three today's plug is grieving and the enneagram with suzanne on february 26th and the 27th it's gonna be a friday and saturday evening and it is going to be streamed online from five to nine central time confident that we all have some wholesome grieving to do coming out of 2020 and if you're looking for a little bit of guidance on how to do it in a healthy transformative manner then this might be a great workshop for you cost is going to be $70, but the early bird cost is $50 if you purchase by January 13th. Replay will be available all the way up until March 12th. You can find the link and registration and more information at either SuzanneStabile.com, TheAnnieGramJourney.org, or LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends and family. If you get the chance to leave a review, we'd appreciate your feedback. And we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Enneagram in the middle. I'll be sure to get a picture of that. We'll get that up on social media. You all feel like you're ready? We're all, what's it? I did. It's okay. <laughs> Apparently, we just learned that it was a ghost rider. <laughs> Yeah, I think so far universally in every podcast that I've recorded with someone about this book, they've asked me about my other book, about my first book, Unarmed Empire. Mm-hmm. And like, so I usually spend like half the time talking about a book that I wrote five years ago. I'm, and I'm just like, dude, you've read it more recently than I have. The Amazon link. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like it. The thing that scares me the most is when people start with, you said... Yeah, and then I think, oh, here it comes. <laughs> and did I? Prob- and, that sounds like me. I've yeah, said that before. That, I have that too. Like me. But sometimes my thought bubble is, "Wow, I shouldn't have said that." <laughs> and then what do you? Then what do you do? Right? Then, then where do you go? Thank you for coming here and for for all the times that you've driven and left home to come here. Thank you, and thank you for. Um, being willing to tolerate me on that party bus that Laura arranged uh, in New York so that we could become friends. And, yeah, just thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being easy to talk to. Well, you're welcome. And I'll tell you that, like, um, and since the book has been out and I've done some interviews with different people, one of the frequent questions is, like, how are you introduced to the Enneagram? And my answer is always to say, you won't ask this question because you know, right? right? So I, I had like the luxury, like hotel experience of learning the Enneagram because it was from you in Connecticut in this just picturesque 
I mean, snow like 10 foot high in the fellowship hall of the church where George Bush was baptized as a baby. You know, it was like, um, like it was just like a magical few days. And then that time in the, you know, going into the city, Mm -hmm. going into New York with absolutely amazing people spending that weekend together too. So, um, it was a I fine feel, weekend. I, yeah, I feel badly for people who, oh, you know, take ordinary. a test or read yeah. a, like, like I feel like I kind of like being there, getting the tablets delivered from the, <laughs> from the mountain. Well, you know, the first time I ever taught in that church, we pulled up outside, and uh, my host said, uh, "Now I hope you brought your A game, because here are the people who have spoken here recently. Maya Angelou, you, you know, she, and I." said weekly from the back seat, I always bring my A game. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we have something in our pocket when we do this because people love to know about themselves, yes. right? So I have had the gift of editing this series, and I have learned a lot. So I want everybody to read all of them. I want to say that I wrote this note to you more than once, I think, in the edits, uh, and there weren't many, that I was so impressed with your willingness to be vulnerable. That's a tricky thing for threes to really be willing to be vulnerable, and you did that really well. And I um, actually went back to get the notes that I wrote you uh, when I edited the book to find the places where I wrote brilliant. I love this. This is so great. And so those are the things that I'm going to read and ask you to teach us about today. Well, so after we cover those two, no, there's more than two. (laughs) (laughs) There's more than two. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Okay. It was my first time. We have a laughter sounder. Oh, yeah, I, need, I need to carry that with me wherever I go. <laughs> you, you know, it was interesting because it uh, I've never edited a series before, mm-hmm. and uh, yours and Hunter's were first. So it's people I know and love, and I would write something down and then erase it. <laughs> and then try Spare to say it different. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate and to make that. sure we're still friends. <laughs> so anyway. Um, no, but it's a, like writing a book is a super vulnerable um, project for anybody on any subject. Yep. And you know, no matter what it is, there are going to be things that you regret having said, mm-hmm. things that you regret having said that way. People who don't know you will read it and they won't know. I mean, it's not like talking to your friends and you pitch something a certain way and they get it because they get you. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, total strangers. And like, what do I, what do I say about my wife or my children or, um, and because I'm a three, and what people don't necessarily understand about threes is like, we're not just concerned about our self-image. We're concerned about the image of everybody that we love. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I spent a lot of time in therapy trying to criticize people I love to my therapist in ways that my therapist won't be critical of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, so like they're really good. Like they're, I did yeah. the same thing for a while. Yeah. And then I'd been in therapy long enough. I gave that up. And yeah, thought, and you're you like, know, well, I'm paying for this. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna go here. Well, um, before I start with the things I want to 
highlight and talk about. I, I want you to talk about this. As a three, how would you encourage threes to actually do this one day at a time? <laughs> I Whatever I'd say, it's not worked because... Um, <laughs> well, you could say, the th- here are the things that don't work. Yeah, so... <laughs> I've encouraged people who I know personally who are threes to take it slowly and actually do them one at a time. And most of them have read it all the way through, like in one or two sittings. Mm -hmm. And that really is about pace and um, about the value of certain value of time. But I would say like for 40 days, like just to make this your thing, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things threes can do is like commit to something over a long period of time. And they don't take very long, you know, 10 minutes and then whatever exercise at the end. In this volume, I know every one of them will be a little bit different. I didn't want to have a lot of reflections that made people do things mm-hmm. because threes were going to just like hop to the like, what what should I do? Mm-hmm. So it's really much more about sitting with your sitting with your feelings and where you are and, and examining yourself, watching yourself. And I would say whatever that time is in the day where you do any sort of slowing, whether it's early in the morning, like for me, it's early in the morning for other people, it's late at night to just commit to 20 minutes, 30 minutes and make it a discipline to just do one. And I think in the framework of a discipline that you're, you're actually doing it wrong. Oh yeah. You can't succeed unless you do them one a day. (laughs) That's good. That's very good. Like you're, you're doing it wrong, but, and that's what it takes for me to do a lot of things too. Like I have to make things a discipline for me to do them. Um, because I usually just want, I want most things just to be over Mm -hmm. so I can get to the next thing. Well, I would say that, uh, I don't think people are going to want this to just be over. I didn't. I, um, actually, received both manuscripts, the two and the three at the same time, and uh, asked if I could have 80 days to edit them, and they just laughed at me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was going to do one a day. Okay. Like, I would have been all in for that. And um, I don't think people are going to want it to be over. I honestly think... It's going to be so helpful that people are going to want 40 more days or what do I do now or um, where where can I go from here? So I want you to know that I've never used anything technical while doing this work and I don't expect it to go well, (laughs) but I'm going to give it a try. Okay. Joel's just laughing like... I'm here for the show. (laughs) I'll show them. I love this so much. Like, I wrote brilliant when I sent it back to you. I love this so much. I'm going to read it twice so everybody can take this in. There's just no way to be successful at looking successful to everyone without creatively shading the picture. There's just no way to be successful at looking successful to everyone 
without creatively shading the picture. That is brilliant and incredibly vulnerable. So teach us. Part of my journey is realizing that I just really thought everybody was just whoever they needed to be in the moment. Um, And that we were all sort of just, that's the way the world worked. And in some ways that's really good. And for me, it's been like a slow coming to the realization that that there really is something virtuous in the desire to want to be pleasing and helpful to the people that are in front of you. But there are a million people in front of us, like over the course of a lifetime. And what happened with me personally uh, was that I, for whatever reason, um, just got to meet more and more and more people, which meant more and more changing and shifting. And so there's a thing that we talk about in um, racial justice and equality work um, called code switching. Right. So I'm talking to you in a way that I would not that I was not talking this morning when I was emceeing a conference that is about racial unity. And there are a lot of black folks in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm using a different code here for you and your listeners than I used this morning. But I was just you do that all the time. And there's something that's really helpful about that because it puts other people at ease. But there's also something really deleterious about that in that it robs you of ever really experiencing or knowing who you are. Because uh, when you finally are alone and there's no one there to perform for, there's no one there to be helpful for, uh, there's just like this vacuum of like, what do I, what do, I do now? And uh, we only become more of what we are if there's not some sort of um, change or transformation. So you get to a point where you go, oh, like I've been, I know how to be successful with these people. And I know how to look successful to these people. And over here, I just don't know anything about myself. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I mean by like cr- creatively shading the picture. Like there is a person here. But you, I'm only going to show you this much of this person because that's the part that I have determined somehow mm-hmm. that is most acceptable to you or the most winning or the most maybe useful to me. And I just thought really that everybody does that. And that's almost like what makes the, it's like this kind of social compact that we make. Like this is how you get along in the world. And the realization that not everybody does that, that there are people who are like, oh, like that's just them being them. Was, <laughs> I found really kind of shocking and startling. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think all people of color, white, black, brown, all, all people of color code in a sense? Yes. Depending on who their audience is. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I, I feel like I would really be bad at that. Right. I, I feel like my stance in the world, maybe it's because I'm old and you know, incredibly charming. But I think, th- I think the reason. Do you get the laugh track for that? Uh, no, I, <laughs> I couldn't decide what sounder to do. <laughs> <laughs> Just put a finger like hovering over the laugh track, and then I'm gonna have to. That, that'll be editing. Okay, it'll sound okay. different in the podcast than what everyone just. Yeah, heard. y'all yeah. just rah rah and keep going. But I went to charm school in Lubbock, Texas, so y- you know, it's hard to outdo that. Yeah, the hunting and fishing portion I heard is really tough. <laughs> 
Well, tickle my feet and scratch Stop. my teeth. <laughs> I said that recently, and they just can't let it go. Like I used it, I thought, very effectively, but evidently yeah. it's unusual. So I think I would fail at that. Is it disrespectful to not try? No. I, it's, you know, on that piece, it's like a sociocultural phenomena that just happens, and everybody does it. it you, and, I mean... I remember when Hillary Clinton was running for president mm-hmm. and there was a lot of criticism of her taking on a Southern accent when she was in Arkansas or in the South mm. and people saw that as disingenuous. And I was like, no, that's code switching. Like, and every, every, you, you do it already. You probably just don't know it's when you do it. Wow. Okay. But we, could, that's a, a subject for another time. Yeah. But I could talk about it for a long time. <laughs> All right. Well, keep ch- chat, you know, entertain everybody while I switch to my next thing. Because I'm doing technology today. And I, I think I did a pretty good job so far. So about the, while you're looking that up, I can talk more about the successful thing. Yeah, do. So I think I write in the book about my um, the bath mat that Rochelle, my wife, got me. Um, that's She got tired of me asking how I look in certain things. It's like, how does this look? How's it? And so she just got me a bath mat that says, you look awesome. <laughs> um, but I think... In our conversations, one of the things that dawned on her is like, oh, like when I was, when I'm going someplace, there is a part of me. It's not all, I mean, I'll tell you, it's, it's more virtuous than it is. Um, there's a part of me that she was like, oh, you care about that because you think it's a way to honor the people who would be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like some of it is driven by wanting to look the part and be successful in that environment, whatever that is. But there's another part of it that is, um, meeting people is like, you know, my biggest fear in life is being a disappointment to people I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that because of your two wing? I don't know. Uh, it's probably got more to do with family of origin. Mm-hmm. Issue. And um, my dad, who's 74 now, uh, my parents grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, were involved um, and on the tail end of the civil rights movement, went to college on a music scholarship. Went into education, ends up getting a PhD, going, uh, ends up retiring from the superintendent's office. And so just like accomplished a lot. And I think um, for me, there was always this idea, like he always pressed, uh, pressed me in particular about taking advantage of opportunities and showing up and doing the best you can. Like, this is how hard it's going to be. And like, I don't think he ever used the word successful. Yeah. But I do think my parents imagined for me uh, that I would be successful. Mm-hmm. And so there's always been, I think lots of threes have to just frankly have to deal with part of the reason you're a three is your per- parents' expectations. It was encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no ceiling on that. Like if you, because no one ever tells you like when you're 10, like, okay. You're going to be successful. And this is what success is. Yeah. Yep. Right. So it's just like, well, there's another thing and there's another thing and there's another thing. So as my friend Jonathan says, it's like there's a, you're doing all these things. Like there's this bear chasing you and you keep looking for a bigger bear. Mm-hmm. And see, from my perspective as a two, I uh, may not feel like I was successful in a day of teaching. Mm-hmm. So my question at the end of the day is, do you want me? Do you still want me? Even if I'm, it didn't do today as well as maybe I could have, do you still want me? Mm-hmm. And I think those nuances in Enneagram difference, even with numbers that are in the same triad and side by side, 
are um, the reason we just have to keep talking and talking and talking about the Enneagram so that everybody gets to learn about nuance. Otherwise, it becomes restrictive when it doesn't need to be, right? Um, oh, I hope I didn't lose my paper. <laughs> I found it. Okay, I'm going to read you. There's a widespread belief that subtypes are concretized and immovable. And I love that you chose to talk about subtypes in the way that you did, which is why I'm reading this. People have so many questions about subtypes. And this metaphor is, metaphor is over-the-top great. So very successful. This could not have been better. Okay. Just, just so you know. So now you know what success is. All right. And you did it. All right, here we go. That There's a widespread belief that subtypes are concretized and immovable. That's not true. Thinking about subtypes, I'm reminded of a house my family lived in near downtown Houston. It was three stories. I've been in that house. The entire house was ours, but at different times or seasons, we spent more or less time on some floors. On the bottom floor was a garage and a guest bedroom with attached bathroom that doubled as my home office. The second floor contained our living room, dining room, kitchen, and half bath with two large bedrooms with in-suite bathrooms. Is that? En-suite. En-suite. So, I'm so sorry. We watch a lot of HGTV. En-suite. I thought it was a typo. <laughs> Just so you know. Uh, but do you still love me? That's the only yes. question. <laughs> The laundry was on the third floor. When I was working on writing projects, I spent a great deal of time on the bottom floor, but none when my wife's second cousin moved in with us and we gave her that room. One summer, when I could hardly sleep, I spent long hours in the living room on the couch, and when my wife or daughters had friends visit, I hid out in my bedroom. This is an apt metaphor for the same way an Enneagram 3 might be self-preserving at the height of her earning power and providing for a family, while a stay-at-home father or mother with young children might be social, only to have those subtypes change as life changes. Subtypes are not locked. Humans shift to these floors depending on what they need to do to survive. That is so good. So talk about subtypes for a little bit and yours. Talk about yeah, yours. Sure. And I'll, I'll probably ask questions. And so it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, f- folks who know the Enneagram really well, who have read that, I, like that probably, that might be the best part of the, <laughs> the book. So, um, because they keep coming brilliant. back to it. So people keep coming back to it. And I think it's just pretty straightforward because people can imagine, especially you, you live in a big city where those are popping up more and more, those three-story houses. And that seems to make a lot of sense. Like, oh, yeah, like this is what I just needed to do. Um, so I am um, a self-preserving three, but I haven't always been. Like, I can look at my life and it's like, when did this happen? And the, when it happened, a few things. Like, in the course of five years, I had two children and uh, got fired from a job and like something like kicked in at that point that put me into overdrive in turn in terms of work um my wife rochelle stopped working at least stopped working full time so like it was all sort of dad you gotta make some money and quite frankly like this sounds really i just always knew as an adolescent like 
I'm going to be successful, I never thought I'd have to work at being successful. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I, I really did think because because all of my life, whether it had been like baseball when I was a kid, um, kind of leadership stuff in high school, like everything just sort of fell to me. And that's when I realized, oh, if you really want to be successful and now you have to be because you've got these four beautiful ladies looking at you saying like, we need clothes and food and housing and all of that, uh, you're going to have to work. And so I just started working all the time. And I don't think I was like that um, before. I think I was much more social, like being with and around people. Like my, my mother, when I was in high school, every so often, when I was not in trouble, like she would just say, like, you're not going out this weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, why? She says, you need to slow down. Like, that's where all of my energy went. And so looking at the arc of my life, knowing like, oh, I haven't always been like this. So my subtype couldn't have been static because I haven't experienced it like that. When I started thinking about how people function, and I remember you telling a story about how you felt a shift in you when Joe got sick, that, that seemed much more accurate to what people's lived experience was. And I thought it was important, at least for, um, and I think this has just really become more important to me in Enneagram language in the world in the last six months or a year. They're like, we're just all trying to survive Yep. and not to be ashamed or embarrassed by what worked for your survival mm. because that's a whole lot better than not surviving. That's right. right? That's right. Um, so, and that's where that, that's where that came from. Plus I love that house. I'm sorry. We had to, I'm sorry we had to move. You know, it was a lot of steps for this old gal, but I, I loved I've, it too. I felt, I felt badly. Well, the, the time was worth it, so don't. No, well, you came in the house and came upstairs, which I feel badly about people having to come up the stairs. And you, I think you and Joe had just moved like maybe a year or so before then. You said, we looked at a lot of different ways of living and lots of different houses, and we chose not to have one like this. <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> I was like, I can see that. So uh, let's keep talking about this for a bit. I don't want people to make the assumption that because of all that has been happening with the pandemic and all of the divisiveness that we are both a part of and experiencing, that everybody has moved to self-preserving. Mm -hmm. Because some people make their way and survive by being social mm -hmm. and some by being sexual. On the other hand, I would bet that, you know, the way I talk about the three subtypes generally is like three layers of a cake and you they're not even layers. I think for a lot of people who are baby boomers, self-preserving was a real thin layer until they figured out how long they were going to live and that they might not work all that time. And then I think self-preserving got to be real, real important. And I... I wonder, I don't think everybody has become self-preserving, but I do believe that whatever self-preserving they had has increased mm -hmm. during this time. And I don't feel prepared to speak into that. So it occurred to me that I've never done the work to teach how you could grow any of those, really. How, how could you 
in a healthy way grow social mm. or sexual or self-preserving. And I don't know, you know, we both have a lot to do. I, I don't know that we're going to get to that right now. IBP's <laughs> kind of waiting on us. But I, I do think that it would be helpful if there were tools for somebody to be more mindful about being self-preserving that don't feel punitive. Right. And that would cover a time when the answer can't just be, you need to save money. Mm-hmm. Because right now there are so many people have lost their jobs. They can't just save money, right? You have anything to say about all that? No, but I think that's a fabulous question and how to inhabit your subtype well rather than just like accepting that's the space that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really fascinating because it's interesting. Like, because I'm self preserving, I find it interesting in myself that I am not extraordinarily worried about finances and resources mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine if you were to write all that out, like this is going to happen that I would become very like, mm-hmm. like let's hoard everything. Let's save everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not even with, you know, a, my oldest daughter will be headed off to college in a couple of years and I'm not, I'm just not worried about that at all. And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's good or not. Well, uh, she's super smart. She's going to get a lot of invitation and a lot of help to come to well, college. Oh, uh, she might. She's she's going to have to apparently, because um, I'm not being very self preserving right now. But I don't know. I think that would be really interesting places. Like, there's a lot because, to think about. Yeah, because I mean, my question would be: Is there a better or worse place to be in any of those? Like, is that a place where we're trying to make a three-legged stool or are we accepting um, life as is? So. Well, you know, I'm, of course, my answer is I think the better place to be is balanced yeah. so that you've got, you know, some energy in all three. I, because I, when Joe had his heart attack, you know, I just switched from social to sexual in three hours and <laughs> I haven't switched back. I've tried to be very respectful since he's working from home and that he needs space that I don't need. And I think that kind of awareness helps us level ourselves out. I think by being aware that he needs space that I don't need from him, uh, I think being aware of that means that I'm balancing. And I I don't think you can balance without awareness. Mm -hmm. And I think people who are highly self-preserving, who have lost their jobs and who are very afraid, are going to find the solutions in balancing because you need to be social and you're going to need some one-to-one relationships, right? Like the the solution seems to be in all three. And I think one of the reasons I love the metaphor so much is because the solution for you was in all three levels and places in the house. You used it all to accommodate what you needed. And I, I think that's a, that speaks to balance beautifully. Well, and I just had a thought about that because I had never thought about it until you asked. And I, I wonder if like all these years of being self-preserving, one of the reasons that I feel less angst about being self-preserving is that I've already built up a hedge against future. Like, so yep. I'll, yep. I'll put it this way. So, a good friend of mine, we both own houses that we don't live in, 
right? So we have tenants and all that kind of stuff. And he says the greatest thing about having real estate is if something goes horribly wrong, you just sell a house. Oh, right. And so like, that's always my, that's like in the back of my head. Like, so if I lose my job, I'll sell a house. I just sell a house and everybody go to college. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, um, and so it may be that I'm in a different place now because I've been so intensely living in that space for so long. I don't want to leave the successful, mm-hmm. got fired, had babies, and a beautiful wife, and had to get a job. I have this theory that threes are not prepared to really do good, deep, self-reflective spiritual work until after a big failure. Do you think that's true? It's true for me. Yeah. I had a conversation with, cause we're at our church. Like I'm, I'm teaching through stances on Sunday morning right now. And which is great because it's only like four weeks and I can only teach for 40 minutes. So I don't have to know much. Um, <laughs> but we're setting up these, um, I'm doing pastoral calls with members mm-hmm who have questions and I was talking with one of them this last week and it was almost like, okay, like tell me what I need to do. Like what practice do I need to do? Like, how do we go ahead and do the failure thing? Like, how do we, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was just so, Oh, I re I re you look like me at 27. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of wanting to be super proactive mm-hmm. about both the good and the bad stuff. Um, so I know in, in my case, that was because there's just no reason to. Like there, there's no reason to do, do spiritual work when you're moving fast and everything seems fine. Mm-hmm. So you probably heard me tell the story about the kid at Baylor who mm-hmm. came up to me, who's a junior, I think, who had identified as a three, and he said, how, how, like, how can I get this failure thing out of the way before my senior year? Like, I, I need to get that over with. And I thought, bless your heart. It, it's probably going to be a long time before you fail and it helps. <laughs> um, why do you think that makes a difference? Beyond you don't know that you need spiritual work until then. I can, I can only talk for myself. So other threes might disagree. I think you literally have to hit a wall that you can't do anything about. Mm -hmm. And it has to be something that you can't like, like when you get fired from a public job, there is no way to lie about that. Yep. Right. And everybody knows, and you can't avoid it. You can't reframe it. And then you realize in that moment, how few interior resources you have there you go that's good 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 so like i am at this point laying in the bed like crying at night like don't Mm -hmm. know what to do Mm -hmm. worried about Mm -hmm. my family like i've got my you know my dad told me one time it's just amazing the things that as parents you say that are offhand comments to you but like like root deeply into your children yep so I remember my dad saying once when I was like maybe 12 or 13 that he had never gone a day in his life without a paycheck. And to me, like, that was like, that's the thing. Yep. Like, like that's, that's how you know that you're a man okay. and a provider mm-hmm. and like you never, and like what's going to happen when 
the day comes that I don't have a paycheck. And like, I've still to this day, like that's still like, I've never gone a day without a paycheck. And for some reason in my, some reason in my brain, like that's success. And what failure does is it, um, frees you from all illusion that this is failure. Okay. I have observed on more than one occasion, it's been a gift every single time, that there is a core group of men, uh, primarily because of your denomination, I suspect, uh, uh, who are all pastors, Mm -hmm. and y'all are really good to each other. Mm Mm-hmm. And really supportive of one another. And you have, it appears from the outside, held that together and walked with one another through a lot. What's that like for a three? What's it like for you to walk with them? And what's it like for you to have them walk with you? Great question. So I'm trying to... That group of people gets gets together every year and just sort of sits around and talks about what's happened in the year. And that's particularly good because in that group, like just about all of us, what we do comes with a particular level of scrutiny, both inside and outside of our congregations. Um, you got a lot of threes in that group. There are a lot of threes in that group um, and a lot of aggressive types. Like yeah. the ones who aren't threes are still. Yep. Um, I've been on a party bus with y'all. I know what happens. <laughs> and um, what, what I think is beautiful about that is that all of the posturing oh, kind of is. decreases. There it is. Because um, I mean, for, for lots of different there's there's respect for what we do one to another uh, and who we are and a lot of us work together on different things mm-hmm. and so just to have that space where you don't have to um or you don't feel the need like to prop yourself up yep and um and the values of the room change like the value of the room then is to um as my daughter says like read read the room um is to Everybody, there's a freedom to call BS on mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. if they're being. And because everybody talks to everybody throughout the year, when someone's like, oh, yeah, this was great. And, those are, and somebody's like, that's not what you told me six months ago. Yeah. Reframe or, that. Yeah. And because of the do- denomination, like, yep. I said, you know, in, in Church of Christ, everybody is, everybody's on like four people removed from everybody else. Yep. So it's also like, my aunt's cousin goes to your church. Yeah. And she, she told me, and like, there's just, so there's just not a lot of room for kind of manufactured type stuff. And that, that feels very comfortable. And I'm not a person who's often very comfortable. Yep. Is coding posturing? Sometimes and sometimes not. Not. Man, I got a lot to learn about that. And I don't know if you can tell, but I'm all up in wanting to know. So I'm going to learn about that. But right now I'm going to do this. How y'all think I'm doing with my technology? Very impressive. Thank you. All right, we're going to talk about orientation to time for a minute. Okay. Uh-oh, looks like I skipped self-promotion on page 65. I think I'll go back. Oh, you don't even have to ask a question about self-promotion. I can, I can talk about that. I know. I want to read what you said first, though. I know there's a way you just go to that page, but I don't know how to do it. All right, here we go. 
Threes are great self-promoters. Self-promotion is a reflex of ours. And given our contemporary culture, self-promotion never seems awkward. How would people know to call us when they need a writer, speaker, attorney, teacher, singer, or whatever we do without a little marketing? How else will people be impressed with our laurels if we rest on them? It's hard to get a promotion without a little self-promotion, right? I don't know how you're supposed to tame that when you live in a world of self-promoters and a world that values self-promotion and where your future depends on self-promotion. And a world that's also very forgetful and self-centered. So people forget, oh, this person is an expert at X, Y, or Z Mm -hmm. because they're thinking about their own lives. I wrote about this on Enneagram today. So, you know, our house, we have the Ennea Awards. And so whenever you do something that's like counter to your number or really healthy, like you get it. And so for me, that's when you're having a conversation with people and they're talking about all the projects and different things that they're working on. And you, and I don't say something Yep. like I did it. Like I, um, like I was successful uh, at, n- <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps coming yeah. up, doesn't it? I was successful at not doing self at, and so this is really, so here's a space where I see where this happens for me all the time. So in our all staff meetings, and there are about 40 of us on staff at my church and we have a thing called, uh, we, we do a, we have a check-in at the beginning of those where people talk about kind of what's going on. And because of the nature of what I do on staff, most of the good things that most of the things people talk about to me are places where I said or did something that was useful or a blessing to them. And so I have a practice of never saying anything in that time. So like spiritual discipline of secrecy. So, um, and that one's a big one in our house. Uh, to practice secrecy, to do things that other people will never know that you did Mm -hmm. as kind of a discipline against that sort of approval. But when I talk about self-promotion being a reflex, like it truly is like for a three, there's no such thing as self-promotion. That's just sharing. (laughs) So when people, um, when people, when you're having a conversation and I'm like, I can't talk without telling a story. Yep. So if someone's saying, did you read about this thing that happened in Chicago? It was over here. Like for me, it's supernatural to say, yeah, I went to that place. The last time I was in Chicago, I was preaching at this thing where I was. And like, to me, that's just part of the story. Yeah. That, and to me, for me, that's just relational. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I was there. I, I preached there once yeah. too. Yeah. Like here's the context. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that that doesn't feel like self-promotion or comparison or competition or any of those things. It feels like, yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I know sometimes it's hard to have written a book and at the same time try to have some spiritual disciplines around self-promotion. Sure. Because then like a lot of people are, I mean, you know this from writing books. There's like, so how much... How many interviews are you willing to do? Like, how much of this are you willing to yeah, do? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think self-promotion for me is, is really difficult to not do 
because it's it's so natural to um, just the way I communicate and connect with others. Sure. Well, I think there's a difference, too, in promoting a book and promoting yourself. Like, we're expected to promote the book, Mm -hmm. and that's part of the deal. Like, we signed up for that. I think, though, this was risky in terms of vulnerability and self-promotion. And um, I think it's risky for a three to write a book like this. And you were pretty transparent when you wrote it. So uh, did you struggle to do that? Like, did you write 80 to get 40? I didn't. I think I wrote 41. Um. Oh, man, how badly do we want to know? The one. The one, yeah. <laughs> um, I did go through here yeah. and look at everything that somebody else took it through here. And, you know, I can see who edited stuff out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I did check that to make sure I thought they did it that right. I, if, I were, if I were to write it again, it would be 40. I, like, they are representative of where I was when I wrote them. There you go. Um. Maybe we should yeah. have said 40 days on being a three in good times or, <laughs> you, or you bad know, times. You know, like a, like a, a good chunk of those I wrote in four or five days because yep. uh, I just went away on a yeah. writing retreat and I knew what I wanted to do and I had, you know, I did it like I do everything. There's like, there's a plan and this is how this is going to work yeah. and this, and these are the ones I want to cover on this subject and all of that. Um, it did not feel vulnerable to me to write and then um like you're not the only one who has mentioned that it's pretty vulnerable and i think that's partly because partly because of my vocation and i'm telling stories about myself all the time yeah and i'm telling stories about my family all the time so it didn't feel risky um but i like i was more concerned about other people so with our girls, for instance, like they get final cut on anything that I ever say publicly about yep. them. My children do not. <laughs> they like, I can't, I can't post pictures. I can't tell stories if they don't want it. Like, and that's just because, um, they're yeah, you want preacher's kids and I want them, <laughs> no, I want them to have, a, I want them to have a faith right. at the end. And preacher's right. kids often right. don't right. because Ooh. the church gets too intrusive. Yes, it but does. I'm, I hope people find it open and vulnerable and maybe I don't because I know more of the stories than what the stories are in the book. Sure, sure. We have got y'all. The world can hear you again. Hello, world. Hello, world. Hello, world. Hello, world. Th- that's um, a, like a good thing to say to us as if the audience was the world, right? <laughs> okay. The whole world. Oh, oh wait. That's, okay. That's just what I needed. <laughs> We're definitely... <laughs> Oh my goodness! Someone was with us from Finland this morning. Oh, we are talking the so, world. So yeah, I'm telling you, yeah. Well, uh, that's good. I forget where else. Indiana, a bunch of other. We need to get forty days in cool Finland. This, that's that's a language, right? Finnish. Finnish. Yeah. Finnish. Yeah. Finnish. That's what they speak in. I don't know. If you're still there from Finland, let us know. Like, there with you go. The, I don't think it. Uh, it might be that. I had no idea about Jackson, Mississippi. You know, I I teach there a lot. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot there to. <laughs> All right, uh, here fin- we go. Finland is still here. Laura Helston. Great. So, Swedish and Finnish. Yeah. It is a language. So. That's all I wanted to know. All right. 
Uh, all right, yeah, let's jump into these questions, okay? So the first one, first couple are about the book series itself. Okay. So if you can kind of answer that. Um, would Suzanne recommend buying the books for our own number and then our stress and security numbers? And then that is from uh, Elizabeth. And then Judy asks, how will a two benefit from Sean's book or any of the other numbers? I have an answer for that. They asked you, but I have an answer for it. Well, you go. So because uh, regardless of what your number is, right, like you're going to um, have the experience some on some level of five numbers, right, your wings and then your stresses. So if that's your, if you're a two, you're going to take on some three energy at some point in life. Yep. Um, if you're a six or a nine, if you're a four. So um, do you the, know that the five numbers for twos? None of them are in the thinking triad. <laughs> I get, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, we, yeah, well. We don't have any twos in our house, so we spend most of the time. Uh, so I, I think that's a, one of the things that makes this an incredible resource, I think, is um, having someone who is a nine, like mm -hmm. explain the experience I have when I'm done with a big project, which is just to go sit in the uh, – easy boy, lazy boy, not do anything like binge Netflix. Like, I really want to hear that from someone who inhabits this a lot more easily than I do. Sure. And so, uh, I have a really significant four wing. And when I talk to four, so much of what they say resonates with me and sure. helps me make sense of the world. So like, I'm really looking forward to spending some time there and to dedicate 40 days to this thing that's going to inevitably happen to me in the flow of my life. So, um, at the very least, those I want the resources from those other four numbers. So that's my answer. Yep. I actually think my encouragement would be that you read all of them. Like I, th I think there's a lot to learn from all of them. I'm not just trying to sell books, but the other thing I would say is that I actually think before you read your stress number and your security number, you ought to read the one from the number you like the least. Cause that's where you can do some work. When you think about how people you don't like because that number just doesn't work with yours or whatever, and you get to hear their reflections, then it's that's a different thing. And and I, I think it has some um, great value. I think you ought to read them all. I think you ought to read your stress and security number. I think you ought to read your five. But see, if I read my five, I still haven't read anything from a thinking number. <laughs> So that's a problem. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I, I, I want to ask a question, my own self. Can I? Yeah, sure. Okay. I, we have to talk about this because it's so honest and so important. Okay. So, but I just want you to know, like with my wife and my therapist, we have, a, I have a rule that you cannot bring up something that I said before. I'm just bringing up something. You, wrote you keep this, doing buddy. this. You keep bringing up things yeah, that well, I've said. I don't go by your wife. I'm not married to you, and I'm not your therapist. They don't so go by go. it either, but I like to <laughs> pretend. <laughs> After lots of Enneagram work, reality hit me. I rarely shared how I was feeling because I didn't really care how other people were feeling. Right. Man, that is that something. Yeah. Talk about that, please. Um. And that's typically for me around um, things like work or things that are inevitable. 
So when someone has to, when you have to do something and people talk to me about how they feel about it, mm-hmm. that's irrelevant. Because <laughs> it's irrelevant to me. It's top priority for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I don't really care. Yeah. If, if you're mad about it, if you don't, like, that has no bearing at all on um, what you need to do. And so I think for, for, many, for many threes, when there's a task in front of us or a project that we're working on, like there's no point in me emoting about that because I wouldn't care if you emoted about that. So let's just get on with it. And so even though you feel it from other people, like I know that you don't like, and, I, and that's another piece of it that I'm just sort of learning about myself. I don't actually need people to be demonstrative for me to know how they feel. Right. And oftentimes when they are, that feels overwhelming to me. Welcome to my world. <laughs> and right? I want you to stop yep. because it feels overwhelming to me. We walk in a room, you and I, of 10 people or 100 or 500, and you read the room that fast. And I have to read the room one person at a time. It's tricky when you do care what other people mm-hmm. are feeling and how they feel and how you can fix that. And I think the the beauty of being feeling dominant and feeling repressed for threes is that you know how people are receiving what you're saying and you don't care. I don't know if for me, because I spend a lot of time talking to large audiences. Yes, you do. I care, but it's kind of like Olympic figure skating. Like I throw out the high and low score. (laughs) Right. So that's good. Like the people who really are connecting, like, yeah, don't yeah. like it actually doesn't matter to me Yeah, I because it. like, Oh, you're easy. Like I didn't do anything mm-hmm. like you're too easy. That's not an accomplishment. Yeah. And like, you're never going to be pleased. So it doesn't matter what I do. Yeah. So you just throw out those. And so, you know, I coach preachers Yeah. and I tell them all the time, no one loves you as much as you think they love you. That's the truth. And the people that you think hate you don't hate you as much as you think they hate you. They just don't care that much. Like, you know, like most people like are really, that's why people are really into the Enneagram because we all really care a lot about ourselves. ourselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that happens all the time with threes, which comes across as very cold to people. And um, it's not intended to be. It's like you are as the, a person is behind the task. Yep. Yep. Right. So it's not that the person isn't important. It's like we have to get this done first and we don't need our feelings to do this, like to to finish this project or accomplish this thing. We don't need our feelings to do it. And so if we don't need it, we should get rid of it because then it's just a hindrance. Yeah, we've stopped. I've stopped relating to what you're saying. (laughs) You don't need emotions to, to get it accomplished. Giuseppe, uh, one Sunday we were walking out of church, and he uh, was participating in worship, and I just moved over to the side to wait for him to finish greeting people. And this woman came up to him and said, Oh, that sermon today was so great. You did such a good job. Thank you. And he didn't preach. And I said, if you don't learn from that, 
Like if that didn't teach you something, then yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's yeah. like, yeah. What you got, Joel? Megan asks, as a three, I have a hard time not judging those that are not doing. Do you have any advice? Other than just not judge people who are not doing. <laughs> um, wow, that would be really particular to a certain... Um, I'm not a super judgy person because for me, if, if there are people who aren't doing things like that's okay, if you don't want to do, but just get out of my way and don't try to take the credit. And I'm used to having to do everything. Um, and I actually prefer it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like COVID, like the worst group project ever and we're failing. Right. So like, just let me do it. Mm-hmm. But for me, what's helpful for me in those situations is usually um, there's more going on that I know as why people aren't doing whatever it is that I think they ought to be doing. And so I have to do probably the hardest thing for me, which is like to really listen to people mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, we're supposed to work on this together. I want to know like what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I will always be the person who brings like, you said this was going to be due on this date and it wasn't. Like, is there a reason? And trying to at least open up space for people to share why it is that they're not doing whatever I think. But I also want to be really clear for myself that I'm right about what I think, about what should have happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this is when you're fortunate enough to be married to someone who's, who trained as a therapist, like making claims like, I thought we agreed that this is how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to have worked that way. Um, did I misunderstand? Mm. And like opening that up sure. to people. Sure. And this is when it's really nice for me to access some nine behavior of just being open and creating space for people to tell their story. Okay. Whether I feel like, cause I may be thinking this is a not accurate but i at least want to have the patience to listen to you through it and then coming to a new understanding about how that how that works and it it is helpful it has been helpful for me to realize that not everyone moves at the pace mm-hmm. that i move at yeah or, very few people actually and um just have a conversation with like our mutual friend risa a couple of weeks ago about a project and I said, well, you could do this, you can do this, you can do this. And she goes, I was telling her how I had done it. And she goes, well, you don't sleep, mm-hmm. which is not inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. And she does. Yeah. Yeah. So grace and patience, which is, I think, the, the great gift of the Enneagram, right? Yeah. Like to, and Sabbath, believe it or not. So we've had staff mandated Sabbath since covid And so Fridays, we're not, we were asked to not do anything. Mm -hmm. And I really had a hard time with that. First on, I had a manuscript doing some other things, but I've like, look forward to it now, just the freedom to not do anything. Mm -hmm. And the great power of that is the realization that the world will just go on if I don't. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like, Like, nothing bad happened. Yeah. Nothing that needed to happen couldn't wait. It's hard to learn to keep Sabbath. It's really hard. And I don't know what you had a hard time with, but, you know, when Joe and I did the work to teach about Sabbath keeping about 
I don't know, 20 years ago, I guess, and then decided to start keeping Sabbath. Uh, Eugene Peterson suggested that you should pray for half the day and play for half the day. And we were all good at the praying half, but we didn't know how to play. Hmm. Like I said, what are we gonna, you want to play Monopoly? <laughs> what are we going to do? It was very hard for us to play. The hardest part for Sabbath for me has been not exercising on oh, those days. Yeah. And so like, one of the things I say in the book is that Sabbath keeping is not only about not doing any work, but not working on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the hardest because you do feel like you're, you're getting behind in something. Yeah. yeah. And like listening to Whitney talk, because I've flirted with I, this idea. I, thought, I wonder if three, no three should probably have an Apple watch that uh, tells you yep. how much you've moved today and when it's time to stand up and if you've closed your, because, mm-hmm. and like that you've, you know, two more workouts today. I have an Apple watch. You can turn all that shit off. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's a bad investment. Then you've just got a, you know, you've, for I, me. tells time. It tells me about my mail. I can, I can, I can tell time a lot cheaper than an Apple watch. Like a, so, yeah. Just look up at the sun. <laughs> Shane asks, any advice for a three married to a four about being totally transparent about all aspects of one's shadow, presenting any kind of picture to a four that is inconsistent with their view of you may stir up emotions that may be difficult to overcome. Would you just read that one more time? Yep. Any advice for a three married to a four about being totally transparent about all aspects of one shadow presenting any kind of picture to a four that is inconsistent with their view of you may stir up emotions that may be difficult to overcome. I assume that second half is about their relationship and not general. When's the last time you were totally transparent about your shadow? <laughs> I don't know that I've ever been totally transparent. No, me either. I don't even know. I try to tip my hat to what I know is my shadow every day, but I don't know about transparency i i tell you you know i say there are two places where rings where i think wings really matter and one is a three with a four wing and the other's a nine with an eight wing i think there's such a significant difference between threes and fours that i think it's messy when you're a three with a big four wing and i think it's tricky in relationship what do you think well, you know, you said the part about reading the book that it's hardest for you to get along with. Yeah. And so for me, that's fours, but yeah. not three with a four wing. Yeah. Yep. Because for just a lot of different reasons, I think that would be really tricky in a marriage because let's throw out the word total for a second, just shadow side, yep. any transparent anyway. A three is going to be able to do that for about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And the four is going to want to spend all day there. Correct. Um, it's almost like, let's make a deal. I'm going to tell you something. We're going to talk about it for five minutes. And then we can talk about it again next week. Yeah, Thursday. Yeah, and you can just have whatever. And probably the three then needs to go to a different room or like go for a drive to not pick up all of the like radiating emotion from this person that they love who's a four because that creates all sorts of mixed up feelings because three is going to feel it 
and not know what to do with it. Sure. And want to engage it because they're going to want to fix it. Yep. Yep. Um, so if as a couple to say, let's talk about this, but limit the time. Like we're going to agree on how long we're going to talk about this. And then we're going to give each other permission to do whatever we need to do when that time is up as a three, you'll get much more transparent conversation from me if we are doing something together. Sure. Let's don't sit down and talk. Right. Right. That's why Rochelle loves to go for walks. Yeah. Yeah. She right? gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Trapped. If you walk far <laughs> enough, you can ask the big question just as you get ready to turn around. <laughs> right. Um, I think that would be a helpful first step is to negotiate how those times look and to be okay. It was like, after we get through talking about this for five or 10 minutes, you're going to have a lot of questions. You're going to have a lot of feels about it, but I, I can't do any more as a three. Like I really cannot do any more than that. I would add to that, that I think twos, threes, and fours are all image crafting. That means that there are maybe consistent shadow pieces in you, but there are shadow pieces that didn't last long that aren't forever, that are because of the circumstances you're in. Like, I, that's a very complex thing to talk about, I think. Joel, you got more? Oh, yeah, I got plenty here. We're going to run out of time before we get to Run out these. of questions. As a three, how do you best connect with your children emotionally? So here's what's interesting. And I've had this conversation with, so when it comes to the girls, it's almost as if I'm a different person and like the rules that apply or that I use, however it shows up for conversations with other people that I care about deeply and work that I do, but like there's a place for my children that's unlike any other place. And so there's no difficulty there. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I, in watching you with the girls, they have had that with you, and I'm guessing that's what sets them up to be able to have it with other people so readily. I think children who have been heard and whose feelings have been honored and who have been seen take that into expecting to be heard and seen in the world. And I also believe that three parents who are parents who are threes who are working on themselves, tend to know that what they want is to receive their children as they are and be as much as of who they are as they can with their children. It's like if there's going to be a place to be vulnerable, I choose here. Yeah. And so we made a deal when the girls were born. Rochelle and I said, like, we're going to let Malia be Malia yeah. and let Catherine be Catherine. Yeah. And like, that's not always very fun because <laughs> I mean, they are both really difficult <laughs> in, in really unique ways and both really beautiful in unique ways. And I think that's got a lot to do with me being a three, like with parental expectations, yep. like, and um, just, a, just a lot on you, but like, it's, that's never been a problem. And, and th- they would probably say differently. They would say like, this thing happened and dad didn't really pay attention. Yeah. Um, they probably both would say there were stretches where they didn't feel like dad liked them. Sure. 
but some of that is just being raised. Um, I also think our children have had the luxury because Joe and you are in ministry of access to you. You know, a lot of children don't have access to their parents just whenever something happens or during the day. I, I think that's a phenomenal gift of being in ministry, and it's a good thing there are some because yeah. it's a whipping for them <laughs> at other times, right? And until this year, well, until two years ago, I took the girls to school. I picked them up from school. Yeah. When Malia was first born, Rochelle was home two and a half days a week. I was home two and a half days a week. Yeah. Um, like they've never, like that's just been the rhythm. The way we of, did it. Yeah. 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 And um, they're good kids. They're real good kids. Um, and we don't know if we're doing it. I mean, there, there are things we know right now we're not doing really well, but we get asked about them a lot, like what we do. And like, I think the only parenting sort of guideline that we've had is like, we just want them to know they're loved. Yep. Ours was, we love you unconditionally and you have a safe place to land. So your girls are in uh, one in a very conservative Catholic school and one in a progressive Catholic school. Mm. We don't even have time to talk about that, but if we did, I'd love to. Oh yeah. What you got, Joel? I have 10 minutes for y'all to, uh, Kind of talk about whatever. It's burning desire time. So, oh, and people in this room. Yeah, here we go. Hang on a second. Hey, I'm Laura. I'm also a three. I don't know. Uh, you said, oh, I'm going to get the wording wrong. Um, what you were talking about when you and Suzanne first started talking, um, you said something about how you always are waiting for things to be over so that mm-hmm. you can get to the next thing. And you said it much better than I said that. Um, but that's been a new revelation for me probably in the last three or four years. Um, how much I, even things I really enjoy, how much I want them to be over because I'm already looking at the next thing, what might be coming up. And it really, um, became really clear to me. I was on a, a trip with my church with like youth that I love, great trip, really good thing. And I was like counting down how many days till it was over the first day of the trip. And I was like, no, this is, this is weird. So I think that's a true thing for threes, and I don't hear us talk about it in Enneagram World all that often about what does that look like. So I was wondering if you could talk about, either of you, practices to say, I'm in this moment, and this moment is good, and the future is still there, and it's going to be great when we get there. But how how do you pull yourself back a little bit from waiting for particularly even just good things to be over so that you can get to the next thing? See how I assumed you're already doing it? (laughs) I, I gave you that I'm, I'm look. I'm hoping to get to the next question. <laughs> I think we'll linger. <laughs> that's ext- that's really hard. I um, when you're living in the future. Sure. It. it you, let's start with David White. Mm-hmm. Maturity is being able to hold all three orientations of time, past, present, and future at the same time. I. I don't. I don't I'm not sure I even know what that means. And I've been working with it for three years. <laughs> but I do think that has, does it sound like that could have something to do with the answer that you that you feel like you can't be in the future if you have anything going in the present or the past? Or do you get bored? I, do you just get bored? I, mean, I can answer for me. Yeah, we ought to get Laura back up here to answer yeah. for Laura. <laughs> I get bored. Pretty easily, but I think it's got to do with me being self 
preserving. Like I am constantly fixing problems. And the moment that I'm in, I, I took care of this moment days, if not weeks ago. So I don't need to be here because I've already done this. Like I've already done this moment. I don't disagree. I'm, I'm with you on that. We call it pre-problem solving at my house, where sometimes my husband's like, are we solving a problem or are we just pre-problem solving something that doesn't <laughs> exist yet? And I'm like, well, it's not going to exist because we already have a solution for it. You're welcome. Um, but I think, so the question for me is that so much of where I get, like, I, I've done this, I fix that, I'm ahead of this, that I, I think I could only notice that on vacation because I wanted to be, like, even when I want to be in the moment, like that's, I think one of the reasons that like fun trips, fun things are hard for me. Like when you've prepped all the stuff, you've been looking forward to this thing, you're getting there. And then even once I get there that I'm like it, I feel like somebody who's running down a staircase too fast. And it's like, I get to a landing that I want to spend some time out, but I already have so much momentum mm -hmm. that I just say that was fun. And then I go and I, I got to think, no, I'd like to, I'd like to stand here in this moment that I've planned or that I've been excited about. I wonder if it connects with Suzanne when you talk about threes um, goal setting, but not celebrating mm -hmm. reaching that goal. You know, sometimes the goal is I'm going to get to go do this great thing, and then I don't even know how to pull myself back from the future into where I am right now. So I'm totally with you with pre-problem solving. I'm very glad to have said it. I've already fixed this. I've moved on, but it becomes such a habitual way of being in the world that I've noticed it's hard even to come back when I when I want to come back to the present. Let's not even talk about the past. I'm not even interested in talking about that. All right, so stay there. So if the, if the two of you then have, uh, you're, you're with the youth and you've thought of everything that they could get into and do and you've solved that problem and you're there, do you think there's a part of you that feels like if you waste this time, not preparing for the next thing, then that could go awry and not be successful? I do. Yep. <laughs> I do. I do think that. That's a good yeah. thought. Um, it's one of the reasons it's really hard for me to, to not look at emails on trips that I have. Like, the best trip for me is le legitimately no internet access. Like, I've been to Cuba a couple of times in the last few years, and that is a, is a great, you have to to buy internet access off the black market. It's amazing. Like it's a, <laughs> and I've done it by the way. If you can't control yourself, yeah. here's yeah. what you do. <laughs> but I think it's true. I think that is part of it because it feels like when I'm going to come back, enter back into the world. If I, ha if I'm not already ahead, then I am behind. That's interesting. Yep. That's a good thought. Yeah. If you're not ahead, you're behind. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And I grew up in a family that if you're not early, you're late. Right. Like being on time is, you can't arrive right. and start at the same time. No. Is that just threeness? Was that just threeness there? Ah, oh, sheep. <laughs> so, how about this, uh, too, for the two of you? Speaking from personal experience, I don't land anywhere that you haven't already figured out where you can get me generic American food. That's right. She says, that's all Joe and I eat. <laughs> People ask, what kind of food do they like? She says, generic American. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I'm not arguing. But so, so here's my question. 
do you have the sense that part of your extraordinary success in working with us is because that's how you do life? And if we landed and you didn't know where we were going to eat and you didn't know what time the car was coming and you didn't know how far it was to luggage and whether or not you could take me with you or you had to put me in a chair, like, it, then would that be failure for you? Mm -hmm. And I don't think because I get to work in an organization that wouldn't call that failure and that would have lots of grace for the times that we get to the restaurant, we all think that was, oh, that was terrible. It's not at all what, yep, right? You and I not a tablecloth. Right? <laughs> and then and I'm at the restaurant pulling up pictures. This is what it said it was going to be like online. <laughs> have you seen these pictures? This is not, this is not where I thought I was taking you. Right. And so I think because there's a mutuality of respect there where I know that you're happy to smile and say, this is not at all what we planned and it's food and we're glad to eat and we're glad to get to be with these people, whatever. And so I think, um, I wonder if there's an opportunity for me to learn for that from that communal extended grace that I could extend grace to myself. And instead of us having the mm -hmm. hot dog story restaurant where I brought you to the wrong hot dog restaurant and then asked you not to fire me. Uh, and then the, wherever we were in California with the not white tablecloth seafood restaurant, right? Like maybe that those didn't have to be, these maybe don't have to be the defining stories of my work at LTM. We could <laughs> talk about like either the restaurants we go to that are good or the ones that don't, or we could just say the food doesn't really yeah. matter. It's about the people we get to be with. Can I places. ask you a question about that though? Yeah, sure. I mean, also, when did we start talking about me? Like uh, I came up here with a question for you. Because you're, yeah, because you're traveling with Suzanne and Joe, mm -hmm. um, do you think you carry those things like as a failure more because you doubt they would tell you the truth about how disappointed they were that oh, it was the wrong hot dog? Because if I were you, I would think, well, they're not going to tell me. It would have to be really, really, really bad well, for them to tell well, me. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Those are the two. Now I'm rethinking every restaurant right? we've ever been to <laughs> and thinking those are the two that I knew from the get-go. This is not, this was not the plan. Like, And so the stories that she tells then carry more weight. Yeah. With, you feel that as failure more because those are the stories she tells. I think so. You know, I think I trust them. I trust us all to say like where we go to dinner doesn't really matter all that. Right. Because we're just talking about restaurants. Mm -hmm. Like I think we all know we're going to get some food. And at the end of the day, there's two dozen Dr. Pepper at the hotel lobby. And so like, right, there's always a fallback. Yeah. We can fix it if we have to. Um, but I think in, it's a good question for bigger Bigger issues and things that mm. I would say, or we would all say, actually really matter. The people that we, yeah. That's a good question. One of the things that's helpful for for our team, our working team, and then we got to wrap this up. But one of the things that's that's helpful for our working team is we have all stances represented. And that means we think together, we collectively think pretty big. Okay, so I didn't... I, I have things left on my tablet that I might get to talk about because our time's up. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. For so I much. Enjoy it. Thank you so much for so much. I'm sure Joel's holding up. By the book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now it's, it's that time, everyone, where I talk about books.